always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this we have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. How amazing to open the letter that way. For the reality is that Paul most likely has never even met this church before. And he only hears of the problems that are arising within them. And he quickly, even in the middle of his own prison sentence, drafts a letter to send it along. To say, do not take your eyes off Jesus Christ. I've heard about you. I've heard about the grace of God meeting you. And everything that resulted in your life and the fruitfulness that it bore. And its increasing measure. As it is in all the world doing this. So take this letter and read it. And here we are today, it is for us as well. The question that you think Paul might have to ask this church he's never known before is when you hear of someone who is following Jesus or a church from a distance, like Colossae to him, who's in Rome, many miles away, do you really know God? And that's the question I'd like you to ask yourself. Do you know God? And to say Yes, I know him. Of course, I could know him better. And he has revealed many things to me. The, the deeper question I'm getting at is to say, how do you know God? Who is he to you? And, and this is going to go two different ways. There is a thing to say, intellectual knowledge. You know what to say. You know how to articulate God. If you've been trained in the scriptures, you understand the revealed will of God, the revealed nature of God. And then there's a second layer to that question, of course. We all know. We all know this, this question. Not do you just know that, but how do you experience him? What is your experiential knowledge of God day to day? How do you relate to him? When you approach him on a given Wednesday what is that for you? Like, really, how does that feel? Does it feel open and warm? It's the difference, truly, between a menu. You have a menu at a restaurant, and the pictures are perfectly formed, and the descriptions are all there, and you know what it is. But it is much different to actually have it, to know it, to taste it, to sense it, to feel it. And that's really what it is here Paul lays out. 
He wants them to know, particularly the idea of knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. See, knowledge is just one thing. Wisdom is more. Knowledge is reading a book. Wisdom is building a bridge. You can read a book on building bridges, or you could build a bridge. It takes tremendous wisdom to build a bridge. It's very easy to read a book. To have that wisdom, to know the one true and living God. Now see, apart from that, the whole world just doesn't make sense. Right? Because God has provided so many wonderful, beautiful things for us, day by day, the food, the clothing, shelter, breath, strength, ability, everything that you have has been given to you by God. We're told that in Him we live and move and have our being. There's not one part of us that isn't affected by God's goodness upon our life in every sustaining moment, His <coughs> providential intervention. One amazing verse for this is Romans 11. 36 that says, from him, see, from him, through him, and to him are all things. That is, from God, he has preserved everything to this present moment. Through God, that is, in this moment right now, he is sustaining the world. He is agreeing or connected to you in this moment. And then to him, that is, into the future, he is governing all things to a superintended end. There is no domain in all of life that is not you relating to God. And now the question would be, how is your relation to him in this life? Distant, removed, remote, warm, charitable, generous. And does it fluctuate, of course? Can we all say that yes, We have ebbs and flows. Some days I feel to be in God's glorious presence. And some days I feel as if every cloud is above my head. How? How to navigate that? And the simple fact of our own sin. We understand that our own sin makes us feel distant. God's displeasure or remoteness being removed and put upon us. The question being, do you really know God In the darkness, right? The darkness of this. If you look at the whole life, if we look at every aspect of life, it is a mixed concoction of good and bad. We know what circulates through the news right now in Texas. And you see the world for the way it is. And often the question on on Twitter and everything else is people saying, there is no God. Where where could God be in this? Look at all these um, 19 children and two adults that were slaughtered that way. If you look at the world for the way it is, it actually is mysterious. It actually is a little confusing. Because we know all the blessings we talk about. We can read the menu every day. But some days you don't taste the goodness of God. Some days you suffer. Some days it's hard. Some days he actually does feel absent. And here is the verse. Here is everything. To know the grace of God in truth. That's what he wants them to have. Colossians 1.6, he says, Since we heard that you have received the word of truth, which is the gospel, and therefore you have come to understand the grace of God in truth. He connects those two to say, 
that the word of truth, suffering and sorrow and train wrecks and guns and all the good in this life, how does it make sense? There is only one word of truth, the gospel of Jesus, a man in the world, on the cross, dying, buried, resurrected in glory. That spearhead, that light beam, diffuses, separates, parses the confusion of is God for me or is he against me? Is he close or is he distant? Where is the blessing? Where are the curses? How does it all make sense? The word of truth is the gospel. And in that gospel, you come to know the grace of God in truth outside of the transient circumstances of our up and down, good and bad life. And that is the beginning. That is how Paul wants to build upon them. Life is this confusing concoction of joy and judgment, happiness and hell, laughter mixed with lament, music also with misery. That is our life. And if you look at life as it is, just as that blank canvas with no interpretation, how do I know God is for me? How do I know I'm even close? How do I know it's just not an emotional experience? How do I know it is true? There's a word of God in truth that reveals that we would know experientially in truth, the grace of God in truth. And this is Paul's work, his clear word that comes only through Jesus Christ. We find that given to us in the beginning of the Gospel of John. John decides to open up the Gospel, his story of Jesus Christ, by saying the word, this word, this clear word that came to us, became flesh. And it dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. And then he says, full, sated with grace and truth. Full of grace, undeserved, absolute, pouring over blessings of unmerited favor. Full of that. He is full of that. He was incarnated full of love. And truth, that is faithfulness, that is not leaving, that is saying what he's going to do and remaining to it. Full of this love, that he has the best intentions for you beyond your wildest imaginations. And that he is true, he will fulfill it, he will bless you. And you will never be able to deny it and nothing in heaven and earth could take it away. He is full, that much full of love and with the power and ability to bring it all the way upon your head. That is who we are told Jesus Christ is. In the midst of everything else in the world, he is the word of truth and he is full of grace and truth. This is the complete Jesus Christ. All of him. We want to have all of Jesus to know everything of who he is and not piece him apart. We want to be sated with his unchanging merited love and his consistent faithfulness in our life. And this is the stormy water that Jesus demonstrates himself in. See, our whole lives are like that story. This famous story you might have heard from Matthew 14 in which Jesus walked on water. Anyone who's ever known anything from the Bible knows about how Jesus walked on water. But what is that? Why did he do that? 
What is he doing? What is your life? Aren't you in a way just cast into the sea? Couldn't you just be suffering or put under the waves at a moment? Could it not be anything, any tragedy your imagination could come up with? One of them could potentially be true. That, that is us. We are in that kind of world. And Jesus walking on the water. And then you have Peter in the boat. And he sees Jesus from the distance. And he says, Lord, if that is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus from the distance says, come. And he gets out of the boat and walks on the water looking directly at Jesus. And then we're told that what happened was the wind came. The wind. He looked to the wind. He saw the wind. He became afraid. He took his eyes off Christ and began to sink. Lord, he says, save me. I'm sinking. The Lord reached out his hand and grabbed him and pulled him up and said, Oh, you of little faith. Now you think, that's pretty remarkable that he would even try that. I mean, little faith, I don't know. If I was on the boat, what I would be, maybe Peter would be the only one uh, to try that. Maybe there was James and John and the other guys on the boat were like, that's something he kind of does. I don't know about me walking on water, right? But Jesus goes so far to say, no, no, no. It really is that simple. Just look at me. Don't worry about it. Do not look at the wind. Do not look at the waves. When you look away from Christ, when you look away from Christ, it all falls apart. The simplicity of what Paul is giving this church, the Colossians, is to know the completeness of Christ. That is to actually see him for who he is. He's more, more let's just operate here, entering into the sermon series. He's more than you think. Grew up in church your whole life, know the Bible front to back. He's more than that. He's more than that. There is a layer deeper. There always is. There is more to know. There is the completeness of Jesus Christ and the ability to actually see him for who he is and not turn away. This is how he opens the letter. You are full that you might have grace and peace upon your life. Paul is addressing a particular issue with the Colossians. Many are not sure exactly what the issue is. It's some type of false teaching that they're entertaining. It's probably some version of an abnormal theology or understanding of Old Testament Judaism mixed in with some type of folktale or whatever's in the culture of that particular city, mixed in with an idea of mysticism to do particular things and asceticism to try to get closer to a spiritual experience. And all that's mixed into something where Paul finds them being led astray. And he writes this letter immediately. We find it in Colossians 2.8. He says, See that no one take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human traditions or the elemental spirits and not according to Christ. Do you see what he did there? He drew it all out to say, there are all these things that are causing you to look away from Christ and you have not found the wisdom of Christ. You are not satisfied in Jesus Christ and these other things are tempting you to look away. Particularly philosophy, the empty conceit, human tradition, and the elemental spirits, which is in the Greek having to do with something of spiritual beings, demonic 
forces or spiritual experiences entertaining other non-physical created entities. And looking to all these and not finding them according to the wisdom of the completeness of Jesus Christ. And so how does this all become practical? I'd like you to think about yourself. Going back to this, your experiential knowledge of the Lord. How do you know him? How do you really know the Lord? There's two ways it can go. There's two traps or two fallacies, two ditches on the road. As you were to try to walk toward Jesus. You can go to the right, you can go to the left. You tend to the right, tend to the left as your life progresses. The first is legalism. Do you tend toward legalism? Legalism, the idea of a rigid, uh, beyond uh, adherence to God's commandments. Do you live a legalistic type of life? Do you? Do you tend that way? And the reverse of that would be lawlessness, antinomianism. Anti is against, nomos is law, against the law. That you actually care very little about God's commandments or moral prerogatives. This is, this is the ditch on one side or the other. That you're going to go either toward legalism, that you have a very rigid view of God and his goodness, and you are going beyond all these other uh, commandments or God's good graces upon your life to make more rules and to try to do everything the perfect way because you feel, and this is it, the feeling. No, if we were to ask anyone at all, do, do, you, do you think you should be a Pharisee? You'd be like, I don't think so. I don't want to be a Pharisee. Yes, but are you? That's different. See? That's very different. Well, on the menu, I'd like no Pharisee, please. <laughs> but, but how do you feel toward God? Do you see? Do you feel on a, on a given Wednesday, you're driving in your car and you give your mind to the Lord in prayer. How does that feel? Do you feel as though he's stingy with you? Do you feel as though you never really measured up and that you had a pretty rough day this week? And there's so many things you shouldn't have said or done and I I feel far. That, that is where we're going. That is truly knowing Jesus Christ. To get rid of that. Get rid of that. But there's only one way. Or lawlessness, you feel like there's just no point. I never can measure up. I don't have it all together. And you know what? I just cut the corners all the time to make myself feel better. I really just don't care that much about God and his word and what he has for me. Because I, again, I have a weird feeling toward him. I I feel as though everything he has for me might not be the best for me. And I have to not do it all or cut away from it. I need to live a lawless life. There's more to be had out there than what God has limited me to. Do you tend which way or the other? And it has to do, and I say intentionally, feeling. I don't care about your theology. I don't care what you actually think is the right answer. What I care about is actually how you function. How you feel about these things. 
do you tend toward legalism? Maybe if you do, you might feel fairly good about yourself. You might feel like you're confident in character and ability and you will arrive to the task. You will live the kind of life that is becoming a child of God. That you will live, as Paul says, the idea that you would live in a knowledge of God's will, pleasing him. And you feel like you got that down fairly well. Oh yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, on the test, on the test I will say I'm, I'm saved by God's grace. But what I'm saying is how you feel about it on a Wednesday when no one's around. Do you feel like you can approach the Lord pretty well today? Because you did it pretty well. And you have your life put together fairly well. That is legalism, you see. That is legalism. That actually is not good. Not good at all. And the reverse the reverse, do you tend toward lawlessness? Well, I wouldn't say that. I don't want to say I don't like to obey God's law. Because, again, on the menu, that doesn't look like a very good meal to say. You want to eat that. But, how do you feel? Do you feel, when no one is around to hear you speak to yourself, that this isn't you? You're not really a Christian. You don't love these things. You would love to go your own way. You wish your father were dead and you could take his inheritance. You wish you were the prodigal son, but you can't be because other people would see you that way. And you know enough to know that that's not a good person to be in the story. That's lawlessness. And you feel that way because you don't know Christ. Both of these problems have the same root. You just don't know Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. It's really actually less about how you feel about yourself. Whether you think you're more righteous or not righteous. And so you're lawless because you never can stand up. Or you're pretty good so you're going to be legalistic. It doesn't really matter how you feel about yourself. What matters is how you feel about Christ. Who is he? Who is he? The effects of grace. Paul writes this letter and says, Thank God, the Father, for you, and I pray for you. You church I've never met. I heard of your faith and the love that you have for all the saints and the hope that you have laid up in heaven. You are living for something else. You are living for something more. And that was done in you by the Spirit. Normal people don't look to the heavens. They always are looking to the ground. They are always looking like little gophers. What can I get? What can I grab? What's shiny? What's new? What can I put in my little hole and save up in storehouses for this earth? They have been drawn by the Spirit of God to look up. That there is treasures in heaven. Jesus Christ is seated there. In the kingdom that cannot die or be put away. And the double deception... The way this comes across, and Paul will address this with the church throughout the whole letter, is the two doubts, the two pitfalls, the two legalism or lawlessness that they can fall into come from one thing, is doubting God in his heart. First, he has to not be generous. God is not that generous. Don't just preach to me how generous God is. I've suffered in this life. Everyone's mean to me in this life. I only get a paycheck if I go to work in this life. Don't tell me all these platitudes on Sunday that God is so great. He's not that generous. 
I have to do something for him. He won't just freely love me. I have to be at least okay. Maybe there's some grace there where he loves me to a certain point, but boy, I better pick it up or he's going to drop me. That is legalism. That's how you feel. You wouldn't say that, but that's how you feel about it. Or the other verse. The other version is lawlessness. You either doubt God because you don't truly believe he is generous in his character and therefore you turn legalistic. You have to figure something out because there's no way he's just going to love you like that. No one loves you like that. Or you're going to doubt God in his character and his generosity and just let go of it all. And say, you know what? His laws, his commandments, his, his moral imperatives upon my life, he doesn't love me that well. He's holding back from me. There's more for me to be had. There is something in my life that is being hindered because of him. And I know it's not appropriate. I know he doesn't love me that well. And so you're lawless. But both come from the same root of not actually knowing the love of God. What Paul says, not knowing the grace of God in truth. Sinclair Ferguson It's a great New Testament scholar. He comes out to find this in the garden. The woman comes and says, as the serpent is deceiving her, and they go back and forth, and the serpent responds, did God really say not to eat any tree in the garden? Did God really say to not eat any, do you hear that? Any tree in the garden? That's legalism. Legalism is taking God's commandments and then adding to them. God, I can't just do this because I need to do more so that God will be happy with me. Because he really isn't that good. The lie comes. Did God really say that you can't eat any tree in the garden? The lie is temptation toward legalism. The temptation to think that not every other tree was for good for food and eating. As though God really was trying to hold you back. And so you go the extra mile to make him happy with you. Oh yes, he, God's generous heart is misrepresented. He wouldn't want any, me to eat anything good in this life. And the reverse, lawlessness. The next lie, the serpent comes to the woman in the garden. And says, you will not die God knows. God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. You see, he is not generous. He does not love. He is holding you back. There is more for you to be had. There is a fruit that you could pluck, and you will know more. Your life will be better. You will be richer. You will be blessed. And he doesn't want you to have that blessing because he's not good. You don't know Jesus Christ, full of grace And truth, there is no knowledge of God, a knowledge of the grace of God in truth. Doubting the generous character of God, either in excessive rules or rejection of those rules, it's all the same in that there is a doubting of the goodness of God. Do you see this in your moral life? Do you see this? Do you see this at all in the way you relate to God? It's a very simple example. Think of any other relationship you've had where someone was Not trustworthy. That is what's going on in your relationship to God. This life is hard. 
I went through this trial and that trial. God's, yeah, he's good, and we sit in church, he's loving. But yes, but yes, my life has been very riddled with difficulty. And so, if I'm interpreting all of that without Jesus Christ in any way, then we think, he's not that good. Those are just platitudes that we say in church. I need to fix this a little bit. He's not ultimately just out for my greatest benefit. You find somebody like that you don't trust, just in a personal life. If you don't trust them, what happens? You don't respect their character. Therefore, you're very rigid in rule-keeping around them. And therefore, you also don't respect their words. You, when they tell you something, you don't always necessarily believe it. So you are very legalistic around them, and then you're also very lawless around them. The, the, the things that you do with them are very rigid and detailed because you can't just be free in grace with them, trusting them. And then also, you're very lawless about them. When they say something to you, it's never like, oh, that's the law of the land. When they say something that's trustworthy, I just believe it. If they're not trustworthy, you don't believe it. You actually have a lawless mentality toward them. The words that come out of their mouth are not always true. I remember when we, Heather and I, were moving toward adoption through a foster system. And I've mentioned this in passing perhaps before. But it stuck with me, and I hope it sticks with you this morning, is they explain foster children. They explain them to you. These children have never been loved. No adult in their life has actually loved them unconditionally. They have had to scrap and scrape for it all. They tell you, particularly of the problem of two, when the food comes to them, whenever it does sparingly, they store it and stash it away in their bedrooms. The norm is that we keep food in the kitchen. See the law of the house? Food goes in the kitchen. But what if the father's not good? What if the father can't be trusted? The small child thinks. The food doesn't go in the kitchen. The food goes more. There's more to the law. The food has to go under my bed. The food has to go under my pillow. The food has to be hidden in my closet. So in the middle of the night, if I'm hungry, I have something to go. I have something extra. Legalism. I need more. It's not enough. I, I don't know if it's true. Or the reverse. Child grows older. That's a small child. A child that's never known the love of a father. Gets older and legalism's gone. What comes later is lawlessness. No law. Rebellion. High-handed against everything. Any adult that says anything, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, you tell me that, I'll do the opposite. Lawlessness. Legalism or lawlessness. Why? Because no one has actually loved that child. No, that child has never seen a father and a father's love. Do you see? Do you see the gospel? Do you see what God is doing with us? Do you see why Paul would say you need to know the grace of God and truth? That you would not be enticed in any way to look anywhere else. That God's undeserved, unmerited favor simply falls upon your head because he loves you. This very simple example is God's word of truth. He says this word of truth, the gospel, has come to you. Jesus Christ crucified on that cross on your behalf. And this word of truth, the gospel, has come to you and is bearing fruit. 
bearing fruit and increasing in all the world. This word of truth has come to you, this gospel, so that you might understand the grace of God in truth. And he ends by saying, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. That's it. You are qualified. By God's mercies alone, you are qualified. At any moment, at any drop beat of your heart, God hears it. He listens. He loves. You are qualified in Christ, period. You are saved by his absolute grace. And in that qualification, he has delivered you from a dominion of darkness. And he has transferred you, he says, into the dominion of light. The kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Redemption and the forgiveness of sin. Adopted by money. Brought in by the blood of Jesus. Brought into the home. Brought into a place in which the food is freely given. Take, eat, buy without money. Drink this food from the kitchen as much as you want. Take it in your room. Take it in the attic. The whole house is yours. There is no extra rules with God. There is nothing you have to do for Him. The Qualification comes by simply the blood that was paid. It is nothing at all to see Jesus Christ this way outside of the gospel. He says he has qualified you. That is, Christ has made you complete. The completeness of Jesus Christ comes in the qualification that we know that you are redeemed and forgiven. Redeemed and forgiven. That is bought. That is, you see a man, a homeless man on the side of the road. It's one thing to see him tattered there in his clothes. Misery. No mercy upon his life. And Jesus comes by and throws a few pennies in his pot. Just a few coins. So that he might clean himself up and put himself together. The blessings that he gives to this poor man. You and I. Filthy in our tattered clothes. He's not passing pennies in the cup to cover us. Romans 13 says, clothe yourself in Christ. In in Him, in Jesus, is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Not through Jesus is redemption and forgiveness of sins. Not by Jesus or near Jesus. Or maybe he stopped by to give you a few coins so you could get a shirt on your back. Who pays for a shirt that costs them their life? Do you see? Put on Christ. He is your clothing. He is your righteousness. He is your covering. It cost him his own son. Who does that? That's what we're getting at. That's what we say is you are qualified. You are covered. You are righteous. You are loved. On your worst and your best, you are just loved. Who pays for a shirt that costs them their life for a man sitting on the street you don't know? This is our benefactor. You cannot separate the blessings of Christ from the benefactor, the Jesus, the Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the blessing. He is this redemption. He is our life. So we'll look as we continue through this sermon series to go into the depths. I would implore you to answer this question. Answer this question for yourself. Not how you know of Jesus, but how do you feel toward him? What should we say to these things?
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son and gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How? If that is his first gift, what else could follow? There's nothing to hide. No legalism or lawlessness. But love. Love is behind the law. Love is behind legalism. Love is behind lawlessness. If you are legalistic, you don't know love. If you're lawless, you don't know his love. But we know the gospel, which is the word of God in truth. And through that we know the grace of God in truth. Dear Father God, we pray that you would do something here in this church. Lord, we pray that you would do something among us. Lord, we pray to experience you and be transformed in this knowledge of you, this spiritual wisdom and insight. Lord, we pray to be gracious people. We pray that you would fill us with your love. Lord, we understand that we fear you inappropriately. And it manifests itself in many ways. Lord, we understand that we do not deal with our sins. And we hide them from you. But you are love. What do we have to hide? And Lord, we do not deal with our wrecked conscience. But we make extra rules. And keep laws that are lower to the ground for us to obey. So we might feel better about ourselves. But you are love. So Lord, we ask that you would reveal your love to us. Particularly through this letter in Colossians, Lord. Let us be transformed. Let us know your grace and truth. In every experiential way that you might have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.